Hello and welcome to The Deal Room, where every Wednesday we talk specifically about all things corporate finance, from the biggest M&A and PE deals to the strategy that drives business decision making. We aim to bring what you learn in the classroom to life with real world examples and hopefully at the same time have some fun with it. So let's dive in. Hey, welcome back to The Deal Room and welcome back, Stephen. How's it going, Stephen? Hello. Yeah. Good to be good to be back. Albeit I've been on holiday. So holidays are always nice, aren't they? But it's good to be back and it's good to be talking about deals again. And it's the beginning of September, post Labor Day. Everyone's got their business hats on again. Everyone's starting to work a little bit harder. So yeah, looking forward to the next few months. Well, look, to, to get back into the flow, I thought, look, let's just pick three in vogue topics let's talk money celebs and ai i mean it doesn't get more uh, more trending than that and so to to put a little bit more meat on that bone these three topics we'll cover today big money coming out of oil rich gulf countries fueling international deals so i know you're going to talk a little bit about strategy sovereign wealth funds and also i saw something you've you've mentioned in your notes about perhaps going to the middle east to work could be an option for people interested in banking for students. So yeah, definitely interested in that angle. And then next up, we've covered Kim. Going to hand over the baton to Kylie. Um, reports this week that Kylie Jenner has explored buying back Coty's $600 million stake in her makeup brand. I know there's lots of um, interesting, intricate details to that deal. Uh, and then also um, being a founder and an owner. Uh, and how does that work out from a strategic point of view? And then finally, we'll talk about OpenAI rival Cohere. We've talked about them before, only a couple of weeks ago, um, but they're tapping the likes of JP Morgan and Goldman for financing. And why are they raising money again so soon? And how can these banks specifically help this process? So we'll look to deconstruct that as well. But yeah, perhaps we could start with what's going on. I know the headline on Bloomberg, new rising stars are powering golf's 50 billion dollar spending spree so what are they talking about specifically yeah this is a this is a story that we've covered maybe a couple of times on the pod before and it's it's a story that we keep revisiting because it is so important i mean think about think about the role that money has to pay, play in terms of power and think about how global centers of power are shifting you know, we reported in our deal of the week on Monday uh, about Lokitan, the Hong Kong listed company, uh, considering a take private. And the reason why they're considering a take private is because the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the Hanseng, has performed incredibly poorly. And Hong Kong is retreating as a center of global money and global influence and global power. So with those gaps, and you may see that a little bit in London and maybe some other places around the world, with those gaps, they tend to be filled. And it seems like the nexus of power, aka money, <laughs> is circling more and more around the ambitious plans of various oil-rich Middle Eastern states from the UAE through to Saudi Arabia. And just before I kind of launch into this story, a big stat that really, really stayed with me as I was reading through this is that in the Middle East, deal making, M&A, rose 30% last year. Globally, deal making dropped 
So let's have a <laughs> let's think about this <laughs> from a lot of different perspectives. One, you know, who's hiring? Well, hiring in the Middle East, right? Two, who's doing deals? Not only the sovereign wealth funds. You know, we've spoken about uh, the public um, public investment fund, the Saudi uh, PIF, and then we've also spoken a little bit about the uh, the Abu Dhabi uh, sovereign wealth fund. But what they're doing is they are funneling the money from the sovereign wealth fund into state-backed conglomerates, state-backed businesses, you know, ranging from oil and gas through to telecoms, through to healthcare. And they're deploying capital, they're doing M&A, buying up international businesses, buying up UK-based businesses, buying up US-based businesses. And the volume of deals and the size of these deals is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more sophisticated. So just to give a couple of examples of the kind of deals that these, these state-backed organizations are doing. So one of the ones that caught the headlines recently was the Abu Dhabi's ADQ, which is again a holding company. It's got $150 billion of assets under management. Their goal, by the way, is to accelerate the transformation of the Emirates into a knowledge-based economy. Now, it owns a company called Pure Health, which is the largest hospital and healthcare company in the UAE. And it acquired the UK's Circle Health, which is one of the countries, one of the UK's largest independent hospital operators, for about 1.2 billion. Now, if you think about that, if you think about the strategy from these Gulf states and these uh, state-backed businesses, you're thinking to yourself, all right, previously we've spoken about culture, we've spoken about sport. You know, now we're speaking about pretty hardcore infrastructure, right? If I, if I own elements of the healthcare supply chain, you know, they tried to buy Standard Chartered uh, earlier on this year, it did get blocked. But if I'm trying to own parts of the banking infrastructure, I've already got massive power from, a, uh, from an energy perspective. There's something quite concerted and actually quite impressive going on here. Uh, yeah, and I was just looking at the sense of going international. So you're saying a quite UK, UK circle health. So just thinking about strategy and the size of the UAE market or the Middle East in general, is it just a case of, I know, as you said, you're kind of alluding to this kind of uh, ways and means to garner influence into various different pockets of an economy and how it functions in its infrastructure. But from a deal-making perspective, it's because there's just nothing to do. I mean, in the UAE, I don't actually know that market particularly well. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And, and this is, <laughs> there's a lot of money, but not a lot of, and not a lot of companies where you can deploy money, right? And the UAE, you know, it's 10 million population, the kind of the inbuilt uh, economy that is not oil and gas is not particularly large, right? I think in the UAE, oil and gas accounts for 30 odd percent of the GDP. In Saudi Arabia, it's 45%. So I've got a lot of money. I'm looking for targets. I can't really find much in my own backyard. I need to go out searching. And, you know, you, we can put a kind of geopolitical influence handle on this. And maybe, you know, when we talk about <laughs> signing very expensive footballers, maybe, maybe that's the case. But 
<laughs> let's give them credit. They're looking for, they're looking for returns. Uh, they don't want to waste this money. They don't want to just spend it without any expectation of return. So they are working with some of the most, well, they are some of the most sophisticated players and they're working with some of the best banks in order to find diversified assets, you know, from uh, Brazil's Braskem, which they bought in partnership with Apollo, through to Savvy Gaming Group, esports, etc. You know, so they're really kind of casting their net wide to find assets that they think are not only going to diversify, but are also going to make them a bunch of money. <laughs> it's not all about global influence. Mm. Yes, it's, yeah. I mean, like you said, impressive then. You're kind of hitting it on two, two levels because I always get quite absorbed by this whole soft power mm. philosophy. And you know, last week, what was it Saudi Arabia were getting into mixed martial arts? I think they were they invested what hundred million dollars into the professional fighters league, and you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you're it's right. Crazy. I think it is if you can combine that holy grail then of like um, increasing your soft power, then you kind of layer in the relationship of these nations in a growing, expanding brick formation on a geopolitical mm. global level. And the ability to be able to be fueled then by deal making that is generating further cash and diversifying their economy. Yes, feel, it feels meaningful as a moment um, right now. And perhaps um, these, I think we've spoken perhaps about this before, but these moments in history, such as the financial crisis or COVID, and then the trigger point that that happens between how the West and the East then. Um, it kind of accelerates a lot of what's you know been happening in the transition of power. So yeah, really fascinating at the moment. And I think it's it's interesting to take it from a from a from a historical perspective and also from a from a domestic perspective, a domestic UK perspective as well, because you know you can get some saber rattling nationalists that say, oh my gosh, you know the Middle East are taking our cultural assets and taking our you know owning our businesses and things like that. But you know what did, <laughs> what has the UK done for the last couple of hundred years? Um, maybe with less regulation and less control. So I think you know. The, the, the way that history works is it goes in it goes in kind of waves and and this seems to be a wave that is focusing more on power the expanding power of the middle east but then let's think about it from a uk protectionist uk competition markets authority perspective <laughs> the the competition markets authority in the uk government has the power to block deals uh, and they do they have shown that they've been able to do this <laughs> they get in trouble quite a lot or they get a lot of bad press for not blocking deals that you know for strategically important uk businesses obviously arm was a great example that's in the news on, at, at, at the moment but to what extent can the uk or should the uk government and competition and markets authority uh resist inbound mna from abu dhabi from saudi arabia etc it's a it's a very, very difficult question. Again, selling the family silver, probably not a good idea, but closing our market to the money who are a driver of global GDP at the moment to mm. significant investment. Well, that's not going to go down well with the UK shareholder base. They're looking to receive a decent exit or a decent return on their investment. So this is a tricky conundrum. And obviously we've historically been on the front foot 
from a deal-making perspective, from an expansion perspective. And now we're just trying to have to figure out how we're going to deal with the influx of money. Mm. Yeah, and I think about the UK's response being dictated largely by economic performance, like you just said. But I just also question the setup of a democracy with a three or four or five year, depending on country, rolling government where you're judged then by your desperate need to be reappointed into government once again for a second, third term. And what, how quickly is the payoff to generate then this kind of like, it's like a, a double-edged sword. You want to fuel economic growth and prosperity in order for, for people of Britain to have confidence to then vote for your government. But at the same time, uh, there's this trade-off of, the long-term implications that that can have because i know i'm assuming a lot of this stuff uh woves in legal matters and setting of precedents for certain rejections of deals and so on and so forth it's a yeah it's i mean it's an age-old problem isn't it well especially in a kind of uh, representative democracy and i think the, the good example that i tend to use is is back in the 80s with north sea oil so North Sea Oil discovered very rich seams of oil uh, owned in part by the UK, in part by Norway, in part by Denmark. <laughs> Norway, what did they do? Set up a sovereign wealth fund. Look how big that is now. Uh, Thatcher, <laughs> what, what does she do? Tax breaks. Short-term gain in power for quite a long time. Long-term, the UK doesn't have a sovereign wealth fund. That's obviously a super simplistic way of looking at it. But this is, this is exactly to your point, you know, are we looking generationally or are we looking at, you know, 2024's election? It's a, it's one that we need to be aware of. Mm. Well, look, let's move on and let's talk about Kylie Jenner, far more interesting <laughs> for, for lots of reasons. But yeah, perhaps you could talk me through this, this story about her looking to get back into her own company. Yeah, this is an interesting one. And the more that I've dug into this story, the more interesting it's become on a number of different angles, a number of different levels. You know, so I, you know, I didn't know a great deal about the company before taking a look into it. And I didn't know a great deal about the founding story beyond the headlines that you would expect. You know, so Kylie Jenner, I think we all can you know, we all know roughly who she is. She started uh, Kylie Cosmetics when she was 17. Obviously, with the help of her mother, she started it when she was 17. And within a few years, she was touting herself or the family was touting her as, you know, the youngest self-made billionaire on the planet. Through a number of different things, but mainly through this cosmetic company that she's launched. And, it, you know, with her Instagram following, uh, her early products went viral and, you know, and there was significant early revenue for the business. Now, fast forward a few years and, you know, Kylie grows up, gets a little bit more sophisticated. Business grows up, gets a little bit more sophisticated, gets to 2020 and Coty, the US-based uh, cosmetics holder and owner of cosmetics brands, including Max Factor, decides that they need to liven up their portfolio of brands and sees Kylie's business as a brilliant one to acquire. So they put in an offer for a 51% stake back in 2020, um, valuing the business 
valuing Kylie Cosmetics at $1.2 billion. This on paper cemented Jenner, Kylie Jenner as billionaire because her stake was, you know, her, her 49% stake was worth, you know, $600 million. And then she had wealth from other, uh, from other sources as well. But then the question started getting asked. <laughs> the publicity running up to 2020 was that the revenue of the business had jumped from zero to 360 million in four years. That's remarkable, by the way. That's an unbelievably steep curve in terms of revenue. Uh, and this would place Kylie as a paper billionaire because of the valuations associated. This is the kind of work that Forbes does when it it, when it puts together, it compiles its billionaires list. And then when we saw the transaction in 2020, the declaration, the disclosure from Coty said that the revenue of, of Kylie Cosmetics was only 177 million. So there's a relatively confirmed rumor that the family, who remember are in the entertainment business, were juicing <laughs> the revenue of this company in order to create even more hype around the self-made businesswoman that is Kylie, even to the extent that allegedly they faked some tax returns in order to show press, in order to show that this company's made this much money. All quite interesting, right? <laughs> Fast forward a couple of years, you know, we're now in 2023, OT bought the majority stake in 2020. OT then went out and bought a 20% stake in Kim, Kim Kardashian West's beauty company as well for $200 million. So now they've got Kim Kardashian and Kylie Jenner. They've, got an eight, they've invested $800 million in these two companies and these two profiles. And both of them, 2023, both of them now want their stake back. So both of them are like, all right, we got a load of money out of this, $600 million, not a bad payday to sell 51%, right? $600 million is not a bad payday, but we are now not happy with the way that Coty has managed brand. So think about this. The brand is so synonymous <laughs> down to the actual name of the company with the founder. And yes, it feels wonderful. Oh, I don't know. I can't, I can't, I've never sold a business for $600 million. <laughs> yeah, how's, your, how's your makeup uh, brand going, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I can imagine it feels wonderful to get a $600 million check mm. sent to me for selling a majority stake in my company. What an amazing success. But remember that Kylie's, you know, at the time was only 23. Mm. A lot of life to be led after that. And $600 million is nice. But suddenly her baby, you know, and entrepreneurs are very, very wedded to the companies that they founded. Suddenly her baby's looking and, and smelling like a business that she doesn't know anymore, but it's still got her name on it. So come 2023, I want to buy it back. Yeah, I, I actually think it's less about the founder ill feeling about how the business is run and more about strategically I think what Cardi Jenner, the Kardashians in general are so good at is this kind of um, persona engineering, the kind of their marketing geniuses 
And so very hard, I guess, when there's such a big brand like their cosmetics businesses where they can't have full control to marry it up with their strategic assets that that build the outbound perception to the world that then can have influential factors on their other business activities. So I think this is just part of, well, look, Kim, Kim's not thinking like billionaire. She's thinking, right, next target, 10 billion. So it's like at that point then, and I've now gone into these other activities like we know with the, what was her her fund? Sky Fund, is it? Where she's got her new yes. uh, activities and ventures amongst lots of other businesses. I'm sure she's thinking, I'm sure um, Kylie the same, right? I need to I need to bring back full control of anything that could impact these other subsequent businesses. And they all need to be singing from the same strategic line, even though they might be in different strategic areas. That makes sense from a, a branding point of view. They are the brand masters. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, I think I think they got excited by the money. They probably yes. bought into the hype of the billion, but now they see a bigger opportunity. And I think you're absolutely right. She's like in your 20s. Uh, Kim is what? In her 40s, right? Maybe? Mm. Is she 40? <laughs> <laughs> but th th that's to say that she's just going from strength to strength at this point. So what's interesting is that she was made on her beauty and now it's becoming business uh, because the following has already um, matured and she has that stable base and foundation. So, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think they will have to, I'm assuming though, I mean, asking you the question mm -hmm. that trying to get back your stake is always got to be painful from a cost perspective, surely to, um, to reclaim what was formerly yours. Is that, is that assumption correct or, or not? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of ways to think about this. And, and it's also worth thinking about the difference between, uh, Kylie who sold a majority stake, I control, which is the big thing, right? Um, and Kim who sold a minority stake 20%. Mm. And if I am a brand builder, I mean, Kim's been savvy here and buying back the 20% minority stake is going to be a lot easier than trying to buy back a majority stake because a majority stake means that they've, <laughs> uh, so Katie has created a management infrastructure to manage that company within their, uh, their brand, within their kind of universe of brands. So to extract that is going to be extremely difficult. You know they've got a new CEO in and 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 all of this kind of stuff. Plus the cost. You know, if I'm Cody and I'm thinking, all right, a, a founder wants their stake back. You know, well let's value it from a financial basis and then whack a big emotional premium on top of it and say you want your baby back. Well, it's going to cost you. So who knows where this will end up. I think probably Cody overpaid in the first place. So maybe, maybe, you know, that it, it won't be too big a buyback, but we'll, we'll see. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And it, it also goes to the, you know, goes to a bit of startup advice, you know, let's hmm. money's nice. We all like money, but if you're thinking long-term like decades, not years, then how does that money play into a decades long career or a decades long strategy? And maybe there was, yeah, as you say, slightly blinded by the money, which quite frankly, I would be if I got a $600 million <laughs> off yeah, of my yeah. cosmetics brand. So I'm yeah. not, I'm, who am I to judge? Yeah. 
and then your sibling you know is already a billionaire yeah gosh yeah yeah all right well look let, let's move on to the final third and final topic which is talking a little bit about the open ai rival cohere um, we said at the top of the episode that we've talked about this company just a few weeks ago about them raising financing so what struck me was wow are they are they just spending money hand over fist in this generative ai race is that is that the deal um and then second to that you know why are these why are these big banks involved and how do they benefit both how does the company benefit themselves by using them and how, what does this mean for the banks themselves as a line of business yeah, I think it's this is this is a good one, and it goes and it, it taps into startup strategy, uh, and we spoke about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with with SoftBank, uh, and I think I mentioned the phrase blitzscaling. Now, blitzscaling is a strategy that Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn fame uh, termed, which is basically do everything you can to get to a position where you are one of the major players in a very fast growing market and by doing whatever you can i mean raising as much money as possible expanding you know it is it is an old school land grab in this generative you know let's if you think about generative ai and the potential market opportunity as a you know multiple hundreds of billion island <laughs> you know you've got three or four players that are trying to take pieces of that island that they think are going to be extremely large now you've got you know the likes of open ai which have obviously made a pretty impressive first move into this land grab but in order to keep up with them and in order to have your market share protected and enhanced you're going to keep having to raise money right there's no there's no question about it and Cohere, as we said, they raised $270 million in June. What is it? 6th of September, when we're recording this episode, they're going out and raising even more at an even higher valuation because the strategy is achieve, achieve market share, achieve economies of scale. And then you can, you know, and then a 2.2 billion valuation. Uh, what's the, the tech companies that achieved the land grab back in the early noughties? A 2.2 billion valuation and then raising money a few months later that's nothing right <laughs> we're talking trillions now so from a strategic perspective this may seem quite bizarre whoa why didn't you just raise more money back in june <laughs> it all seems like a bit of a faff but it goes to show just how important this split scaling approach is in a very large but high potential market hmm. it's almost like i've got this image in my head of two massive stop clocks one at cohere which is like they're just like it's like a stop clock countdown and then the money in the bank count declining <laughs> and then it's like right come on grow 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 and their focus is the ai momentum is starting to slow a little bit so it's like come on we have to move quick and then on the other clock is on the bank's clock which is similarly thinking we know that they're having to move quickly because of the slowing of momentum and the AI enthusiasm. So our ability to generate fees is declining all of the time in terms of how we want to facilitate these deals as fast as possible. So I can imagine if I were, if I was working at JP or Goldman, I'd be relationship building like there's no tomorrow with my contact at Cohere, offering them every and other solution to give them more money 
knowing that they want that, but knowing ultimately that I'm going to generate business, I'd be absolutely looking to engineer ways to do that as fast as possible before, I don't know, the economy turns or the AI starts to decrease in pace or and so on. We all know AI here is, you know, this is the beginning of a new frontier almost of technology uh, at this point. But we had, like with any new technology, there's an immediate burst of activity. And we're probably just on the other side of that mountain at the moment. And so from a cash-making point of view, I can imagine the bankers are, this is an opportunity, right? And it's a, it's a, a timed opportunity that they've got to move quick. So yeah, I can definitely see why they're looking to get their paws in. Yeah, and we're just, you know... <laughs> We're just coming off the back of the top of the hype cycle. You know, there's the Gartner hype cycle that looks at the kind of mm. the, the the hype cycle and then the the trough of disillusionment or ones or and then the actual mass adoption. So you know, go uh, here, make make hay when the you know when the sun is shining, raise as much as you can. J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. You don't often see big ticket investment bankers helping to raise venture stage funds for unicorn ventures, often rounds are oversubscribed and there's a different network. But JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, partly in the hunt for getting some of, you know, some of the some fee revenue. You know, MA's been a bit dead, IPO's been a bit dead. Here's an area that could, you know, that could make us a, you know, a little bit of money. So they've gone out and supported Cohere to raise this additional money. Again, trying to make hay whilst the sun is still slightly shining. Yeah, I imagine it's twofold for the banker. Maybe it's like um, they're acting as a broker. So not only are they facilitating on the financial side and getting fee payoff, they're also probably have got a big client base who are demanding some sort of AI exposure. And so therefore they bridge the gap and they act then, they facilitate a better enhanced relationship for future business with the client base, as well as picking up the fee on the transaction of the financing for, for Cohere. So, well, as we said at the beginning, you know, money makes the world go round. <laughs> So look, well look, let let's uh, let's let's wrap it up there. Um, as ever, feel free to. I think I always put the LinkedIn uh, links to both Stephen and I on each episode. So feel free to connect if you have any questions. Uh, please do just shout, ping us a message. Uh, if you uh, haven't already subscribed and follow the pod, just do so on Spotify, or Apple, wherever you listen to this, or YouTube. Uh, hit the like and subscribe button; be much appreciated. And we will see you next week. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Anne.